long specialized in violence. My first impression of fraudsters, the embezzlers, the insurance scammers, tax evaders, insider traders, was that they were somewhat boring and elitist. These are the people who wear suits and ties to work, right? They don't look like a lot of inmates I interview in prison. Those guys look dangerous. Many people view fraud as a victimless crime or one that has little impact beyond someone's pocketbook. Who cares if insurance companies get scammed or a down on her luck bookkeeper slips her hand in the money till? The cash isn't coming out of our pockets. Some fraudsters even use this argument as a defense, if not against a conviction, then against a serious penalty. Of course, there are plenty of frauds committed against individuals, identity theft, romance cons, investment fraud, and the impact of any one of these can be devastating. Fortunately, there is increasing recognition of the emotional relationship and financial havoc that financial crimes cause victims and their families. Slowly but surely, white collar criminals are being taken more seriously and punished more harshly. From 1996 to 2011, the average sentence nearly doubled for fraud, but dropped in federal crimes overall. Just because someone doesn't look like our idea of a criminal doesn't mean she or he isn't dangerous. What got me interested in this topic are all the different links between violence and fraud that I came across time and time again. Witnesses to financial schemes have been murdered as they prepare to turn in a corporate executive or testify against a co-conspirator. Here's an example. On September 22, 2020, just four days after he was indicted and months after he began cooperating with the FBI and U.S. Attorney General's office, 54-year-old Cornelius Garrison was shot down inside his apartment. Before he was murdered, Garrison was to be the star witness against an organized ring who allegedly hired people to pack a vehicle with passengers, get behind the wheel of a car, and intentionally sideswipe an 18-wheeler. These bogus accidents would be followed by bogus lawsuits. Members of this crime ring included attorneys, medical professionals, and the slammers who did the dirty work. Now, perhaps as you're listening to this story, you're still not convinced fraud is a topic worthy of discussion. After all, as one of my emailers pointed out, this murdered man was knee deep in crime himself. No, he didn't deserve the fate he received, but is this something that should keep us law-abiding citizens awake at night? Trust me, there are plenty of fraud-related murders I could tell you about that might. How many times have you watched a true crime show or scrolled through a news site and heard about a life insurance policy that was a motive for murder? In March of 2020, 60-year-old Carl Carlson was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole for the 1991 murder of his wife, Christina, in a house fire he had set himself. And then, after getting their three small children out of the house, made sure she couldn't escape. Carlson had taken out a life insurance policy on her just 19 days before her death and collected more than $200,000. He also moved out of state just four days after the fire. Even though the insurance company was suspicious and a fire investigator thought there was evidence the fire was set deliberately, no charges were ever filed and Carl Carlson's life went on. And one of the things he went on to was more fraud. In 2002, Carlson collected nearly $150,000 from a barn fire. In 2008, Carlson's 23-year-old son, Levi, died when a carjack failed while he was underneath a car. The only witness? His father, Carl Carlson. Authorities soon discovered that just 17 days before Levi Carlson's death, his father had introduced his son to an insurance agent and convinced Levi to take out a life insurance policy on himself. 
Carl Carlson made the first payment on his son's policy in cash. He was a sole beneficiary, according to Levi's handwritten, which coincidentally was notarized the day of his death. Levi Carlson left his father in charge of deciding how his assets would be distributed to his young daughters. After Levi's death was ruled an accident, Carl Carlson collected a $700,000 payout. Carlson was only brought to justice after his second wife, Cindy, began to suspect that her husband had played a role in her stepson's death and began to wonder if she herself might be in danger. In 2012, she hired a private investigator to look into her husband and soon discovered that he would stand to gain $1.2 million if something happened to her. To her horror, she also found out that her husband had taken out life insurance policies on his two granddaughters. Working with the FBI, she wore a wire and eventually got Carlson to confess to his son's murder on tape. In 2013, he pled guilty to second-degree murder. It was this conviction that led to the reopening of his first wife's death. The moral of these stories is that some white-collar criminals are just as violent and dangerous as anyone you'd meet in a dark street or on the wrong side of the tracks, and sometimes a lot more so. Welcome to The Forensic Psychologist and our episode on the psychology of fraud. I'm Dr. Joni Johnston, a clinical and forensic psychologist, private investigator, and as always, your host. I'm delighted to introduce today's guest, Jim Quiggle, the Senior Communications Director and Lead Coordinator of the Washington, D.C.-based Coalition Against Insurance Fraud. Welcome to the show, Jim. Joni, thanks. It's so great to be here with you. We are very excited to hear about some of the things that your organization does and how we can understand this very big topic. So let's just start out by defining fraud. I think most of us think we know it when we see it, but how would you define fraud? Joni, let's boil it down and forget all the legalities. Insurance fraud is basically knowingly stealing insurance money that doesn't belong to you. It's that simple. And what are the most common kinds of insurance fraud that you run across? Well, Joe, the big 800-pound gorilla in in the living room really is uh, health insurance fraud. This dwarfs all other forms of insurance fraud by several degrees of magnitude. The insurance, the health insurance uh, business, especially Medicare and Medicaid, are almost pinatas that are just being swatted and whacked by, by and drained by insurance crooks because they've learned how to penetrate the system. They learn how to, they learn where the gaps are, the holes are, and how to exploit them with tremendous efficiency. Medicare and Medicaid are fighting back. They're doing, they've made a lot of efforts to plug the, the leaks in the system in the dike. But the fact is, Medicare and Medicaid especially are, are just absolute mother loads and gushers of insurance schemes. The reason is the money is so big. Medical claims are, are just worth, can be worth a fortune if you do it. And so when you're talking about Medicare or Medicaid fraud, are these physicians who are billing like fake visits or are they providing unnecessary treatment? Help me get a sense of what you're talking about specifically. We're talking the full gamut, Joni. Yes, doctors are very big. That they are just rifling Medicare with, with fake claims, whether it's whether it's for sometimes they're doing surgeries on people that don't even need surgeries, but the money's so good they're convincing these people that they need to submit to the knife. 
They're over, they're inflating claims uh, a lot. You might walk in for a bunch of small treatments, maybe some knee treatments or physical therapy. And you, the, the physician bills for hundreds and of treatments that the, that the physician never even gave. We, we've seen cases where doctors have billed Medicare for very expensive treatments when they're out vacationing in places like Iceland and, and Puerto Rico. That's mind-boggling. I have to tell you the first thing you were talking about, this idea of going in to see a doctor and him prescribing or her prescribing some kind of treatment that is not necessary is terrifying to me. I'm a doctor phobe anyway. <laughs> and so it's just terrifying to think of somebody having unnecessary surgery just as so somebody can make a buck. Think of this, uh, these providers prey on some of the most vulnerable people in society. On the Medicare side, we're talking about seniors who often are very trusting people that they believe the person in the white coat. And if the person in the white coat says, yes, you, you need this, then yes, there's a better chance uh, than, than you would think that many seniors are just going to say, okay, sure, you're the person with the white coat. I got to believe you. Medicaid is just as, is just as vulnerable. We're talking about folks from lower income families, often without education or really a, a grasp of the medical system. We've seen corporate dental practices who will lure young Medicaid kids, seven or eight years old, and yank their entire teeth out of their mouth and install, install steel dentures in their place uh, just in order to hike up the Medicaid uh, dental billings and, and, and try to make quotas that are set by their, their corporate masters. They've done uh, root canals on, on, on young Medicaid kids, seven or eight or nine in a row, or they drill cavities of healthy teeth. Corporate Medicaid dentistry is generally nice and honest, but you've seen, you've seen some of the most profligate predators you can imagine taking advantage of little Medicaid kids who, who just don't know anybody or can't defend themselves. So many questions come to mind when I hear you tell this, some of these stories, one being, I think most dentists and most doctors get into their to a healthcare profession to help. Uh, and I'm just wondering, how does somebody who, uh, at least we hope, started out his medical career or dental career to heal and to fix people, become somebody who is literally torturing people in some respects, just you know, to hike up their income? Yes, th that's a great question, Joni. And you, you have to wonder if, if these people have some underlying pathology to begin with. They're obviously smart people. They're, they're doctors, they're physical therapists, they're dentists, whatever. They're cardiologists, heart doctors. There's some demon seed, some underlying pathology that compels them to chase the money trail. Uh, they, they start making money off of, they start making money off of a few scams the money comes in, nobody challenges them, then they start getting greedy and suddenly it becomes a thrill ride and they, they start stretching farther and farther with bigger and bigger scams to the point where they just say, oh, I'm never going to get caught. I'm just going to start operating on people, opening up their backs to do back surgeries, opening up their knees. I'm going to give them chemo they don't need no matter how much it, it, it damages them permanently. I can do these things because nobody's going to catch me. You almost get with the thrill of the money coming in, the Lamborghinis and Ferraris, and just the thrill of getting away with it. 
I did some reading on fraud before our show, just to get a sense of maybe some of the things that you deal with. And there seems to be from a psychological standpoint, some difference of opinion in terms of how much fraud, and we'll talk about healthcare fraud right now, which is our, our topic. There seems to be some difference of opinion among researchers, and I'm talking about psychologists specifically, about how much of this is situational and how much of it is character or as you pointed out, some kind of predisposition or some kind of psychopathology. And I can find studies that say, basically, if you put people in a certain situation where they are desperate enough or in enough financial straits or whatever, that more people than you would imagine would go down that path. And then you find people who say, yeah, maybe there has to be some opportunity or some pressure, but there, there are a lot of people who would never do this. Where, where do you fall with that? I think it really depends on, on each situation. These, in healthcare, these people are not desperate for money. These are doctors that are hauling in 10, 20, 30, 40 million dollars. They're, they're buying Lamborghinis, they're, they're, buying, they're, they're buying mansions with, with, with 40,000 square feet on, on the waterfront. They don't need the money, they just get they're so latched on, I think, to the thrill ride of the money coming in and what they can do with it. They're living this, they're almost caught up in their own dreams. And there's a disconnect between them and the welfare of their patients. That's a really good point, because I think in thinking about some of the studies that I read, it seems like some of the studies that, that point to situational factors as a major influence are talking about things like embezzlement, where somebody has been a good employee for 10 years. And then they get into some kind of financial difficulty and they end up doing something that they might not have done otherwise. So you're right. When you're talking about a physician, especially somebody who is systematically overbilling or doing unnecessary medical procedures, it's really hard to argue that this is somehow out of desperation or some kind of situational problem. Sometimes, Joni, sometimes it is situational. Outside of the healthcare arena, you, you will have homeowners who... Are, who suddenly fall on hard times, their investments go bad or they lose their job. They might be the little league coach, normally honest people. Suddenly they're, they're, they're faced with losing their home. They're faced with losing everything. They, they will stop at nothing to keep their lives going, their families intact. We had a case of a person who made terrible investments, Yale uh, law graduate. His mansion was, he was gonna lose his mansion. So he torches it in order to try to recoup money he gets caught. His, his trial is on camera. He's on the verge of being convicted. And it's, it's clear he's about to be convicted in court. He pulls out a gun and shoots himself in front of the TV cameras live. That's a tragic story all the way around, isn't it? Th- this is what happens to people whose lives unravel when they reach for the brass ring out of desperation, using insurance money as a last minute stimulus bailout. We're going to take a quick break. I'm Dr. Joni Johnston, and you are listening to The Forensic Psychologist, and our show today is The Psychology of Fraud. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep, but it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older until now. 
Healthy Cell Pro is the only multinutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa, award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. Welcome back to The Forensic Psychologist. So getting back just for a minute to the healthcare fraud that we started out the show talking about, do we have any statistics on how often this occurs? Joni, fabulous question. There's no fabulous answer. There is very little verifiable PhD caliber documentation of how much insurance fraud really happens a year in health insurance. Medicare has estimated in the past that it's about 60 to $66 billion a year in stolen money, but even they cannot fully document it. Likely, that's a conservative figure. It's probably a lot more, but nobody really knows. All you can do is just throw zeros around with, with estimates that are good faith and sound reasonable, but you can't document it. Yeah, I can imagine that'd be hard. You mentioned earlier that so often people get away with this for an extended period of time. And I'm wondering, how do they ever get caught? What happens that they that somebody starts investigating? Joni, they get greedy. And then they get sloppy. They, 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 they believe that they will never get caught. So they keep on making more and more outrageous claims. And not only are the claims so grossly inflated, but they keep doing it beyond, they start billing outrageous amounts. We've seen doctors who will bill for more than 25 hours in a day. And this will be for things, for procedures that they don't even do, for, for completely phantom procedures. And the money keeps on rolling in. And they keep doing this month after month, year after year. You, you can't keep this up. Eventually, Medicare or the health insurance companies, they're analytics, their, their computer systems are going to catch the anomalies. They're going to say, this guy's building way too much. we got to look closer into this. And then it's clear that the, 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 this doctor is way overbilling. And then that starts the investigation, then the downfall. And what about from a kind of a consumer protection angle? I have to tell you, when I was reading the article that one of the articles that you sent me about um, some dental fraud, I remembered at one point taking one of my kids when they were young to a, a dentist that we didn't normally see. I think the dentist that we had seen for years was booked up or whatever, and I wanted to get my daughter in. And I was absolutely astonished that my daughter had been seen every six months for checkups. She had never had more than one cavity. And this dentist came out and told me that my daughter had six or seven cavities and needed all this other work. And I just was flabbergasted and I didn't believe it for a minute. Because again, we had regularly been seeing our dentist and I you know, didn't do any of it and went back to see her regular dentist. And he was floored also that this is somebody telling, you know, again, telling me as a mom that my kid needed all this dental work. And I knew that wasn't true. And I don't know if I had not, you know, had such faith in my regular dentist and wanted to get that second opinion. I could see how somebody would end up having all those procedures because you're a mom or you're a dad and you want your kid to be healthy and not to suffer, et cetera, et cetera. So it'd be easy to be talked into something like that. Well, Joni, that, that's good parenting on your part, alert parenting. 
And we, we at the Coalition Against Insurance Fraud advise parents to watch out for unusual, for unusual situations like that, where the dentist out of nowhere starts saying, you need all kinds of surgical work, all kinds of uh, cavity work, and yet you or your kids have, have had a clean, pretty clean bill of slate over the years, and suddenly there's this irrational spike in what the dentist says is, is, are, are bad teeth. That makes no sense. So this is one of the things you need to stay alert to as, as a parent or, or as a patient. Yeah, and I think it's easy to say, oh, get a second opinion, which I had the option to do that, but there may be many people who couldn't afford to get a second opinion or get it checked out. That's very right. Or they may just not have that many healthcare options. Exactly. You're in a rural area, low income. There are only so many medical providers within striking distance. Sometimes you just have to go with whoever happens to be available and, and therein comes the roll of the dice. How hard is it to prosecute these cases? It takes a lot of determination, frankly, and in many cases, a lot of courage. These cases can be unfathomably complex because you have, you have bills, stacks and stacks of digital bills that, that just pile high and, and, and mounds of granular data that has to be poured over. The prosecutors have to be absolutely committed and be willing to spend the time to, to do this because it's not, oh, we got a few claims, let's go after the person, convict them. You, you've got to pour over huge mounds of bills that are often cleverly disguised and that are forged by very smart people. And even though they're greedy, they're still going to mount a, a vigorous defense. You have to be willing to go toe-to-toe with these people. And that takes a commitment by the prosecutors. I was going to say, because I have to say, and I initially contacted you because I had read so many murder cases where people were murdered for life insurance. And I got really obviously concerned about that, but also curious about, I I want to talk about that. But I, I also was amazed to see that so often in some of these, what turned out to be murder cases, there, a person had a history of fraud or embezzlement or some kind of theft. And what seemed to be almost always the case as the person had done it and they got off. They agreed to pay the money back. And so they paid the money back or they settled or whatever, and then they ended up doing it again. So I was wondering, I'm sure it is difficult to prosecute some of these cases. I wonder how many of them, it just becomes, okay, I'll pay the money back, which I understand on the one hand, but then you're in some respects, you might be kicking the can down the road. Sometimes that's a tactical decision, Joni. You pay the, you, you cave in, you, you plead guilty, pay the money back in order to avoid a much longer sentence. Your counsel is probably telling you, you don't have a chance to fight this. Give in, accept a lesser sentence, pay the money back and get on with your life. And so when a person, and I know we're speaking in generalities here and every case is different, so it's hard to answer this question, but I'm just wondering from a bigger picture standpoint, from an insurance standpoint, how advisable is that in terms of, I guess what I'm really asking about is, are many people who commit health insurance fraud, for example, are they repeat offenders? Many of them are. We've seen people that are convicted, kicked out of Medicare, and then they, then they go back into Medicare using a fake identity or they do the work, but under another doctor's identity who may be colluding or may have their identity stolen. 
the money is just so good. It may be the thrill of a chase that's so good because these are people who can make perfectly decent living doing it honestly, yet they choose to do it dishonestly. And you have to wonder why people who can make a, a solid six-figure salary just playing, just being honest, suddenly choose to make a six-figure salary being dishonest. That's such an interesting point. I was astonished at some of the sophistication and just breadth of some of the insurance scams I read about. I don't know if you're familiar with this case out of New Orleans that is currently being prosecuted about, it it was basically this whole ring of people who would essentially get in a car, sideswipe an 18-wheeler, and then claim all these damages. And it has turned into not just a one-time thing, but this ring involving attorneys, involving this one person who was responsible for 50 different staged accidents. Uh, One of the witnesses was actually murdered. Apparently, he was cooperating with the FBI. But it was incredible. And again, these are individuals, certainly the attorneys involved, who you would think would would be able to make a living they have the education, they have the training, they have the credentials in some kind of law-abiding way. And yet this was just huge. Joni, that's a, an excellent case that you're talking about. That's probably the biggest case in, in New Orleans history for uh, stage crashes. There are even larger cases in Southern California, in, in Florida, in New York City, in, in the boroughs, where people have made a living maneuvering innocent drivers into horrific stage crashes. We had a case where a a, a beloved grandmother in her 70s was driving along one night in Queens, minding her own business, and a stage crasher maneuvered her into a crash. She panicked, lost control, ran into a utility pole, and she died of heart trauma from the setup crash. And it was all for, for insurance money, for a few dollars of insurance money. It just seems like so much work, Jim. (laughs) (laughs) Some of these, you know, scams or frauds, they seem like so much work. It does make me wonder as a psychologist. I just can't believe it's purely for the money in a lot of these cases. Joni, you're right. It's not just purely for the money. For some, it is, especially for the lower level ring members. In South Florida, for example, very large, diverse uh, immigrant communities. Over the last two or three decades, stage crashes and Medicare fraud have given recent immigrants to the United States a leg up on on the American dream. You get off the boat, you're recruited into a, a stage crash ring or a Medicare ring, and you can start making good cash money overnight. With, without knowing a whole lot of English or anything about the, their, their new country. But the, the money just flows in as cash on, on the barrel head from staging uh, car crashes, uh, bilking Medicare. We, we've seen people coming in out of Cuba who are almost literally overnight millionaire, multimillionaires from, from Medicare fraud because they get hooked up with the right scammers who, who plug them into this fraud system. Yeah, it really is astonishing to me how organized some of this is. These are very well organized. These people could make a very good living as corporate executives because they have a great mind for organization. Regretfully, they also have a mind for 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 deceptive organization. That's their their downfall. But yes, these are the leaders are very smart people who put together very complicated corporate style rings with dozens and, and sometimes hundreds of ring members. 
One thing I was wondering about as we're talking is, you know, I wonder how the general public feels about insurance fraud in general. I've certainly heard people say, hey, it's a victimless crime. It's not something that I'm worried about. Or I'm not going to lose sleep over. It doesn't really affect me. It's the insurance company. And I think that might be a viewpoint that a significant minority of people might have. People's attitudes have improved over the years. We, the Coalition Against Insurance Fraud has been working very hard to, to try to preach honesty in all insurance dealings over the years. Sometimes we use it with, we do it with scare tactics. Sometimes we just say we preach the higher road as the way to, to, to better life uh, rather than a jail cell. All of this seems to work to some degree. People's People's attitudes are improving, but that said, there's still a very disturbingly large percentage of Americans who either don't know much about insurance fraud, they don't care enough about it, or it's just not a big enough deal for them to say, gee, we've got to get a national grounds of, of against this crime. There's just not enough of that out there. And that's why the Coalition Against Insurance Fraud is still in business. I can see why, and ultimately it does impact all of us whether it's harder to get life insurance, whether we have to jump through more hoops because somebody is taking advantage of the system, whether our premiums go up, I would imagine ultimately it does affect us. It, it does affect us in ways that we can't even tell. Insurance companies have to pass along all costs of doing business to their policyholders. That includes in the cost of insurance fraud. If an insurance company is built out of tons of money, for, for people who torch their cars or stage accidents, that, that the company's not going to swallow that. It's, it's going to just raise premiums. We saw a case in Mass, situation in Massachusetts where stage crashes were out of control. The Massachusetts Fraud Bureau cracked down and cleaned up these stage crash rings. Guess what happened? In the urban areas where the rings were concentrated, premiums started going down by two and $300. That's fascinating that's a direct hit on somebody's bottom line or a direct boom to somebody's bottom line, depending upon way, the way it goes. Oh, absolutely. And um, that's a very clear case. The Insurance Inst Information Institute estimated that in Florida, no fault uh, auto scams, again, stage crashes, torching your car, contributed as much as $100 to, to premiums for a family of four. So the, these, there, is, there is some evidence of pass along costs. Now I have to talk to you about life insurance, of course, because of course. as I told you, this was the area that initially really piqued my interest because of these we cases. Have to go I, there. We have to go there. <laughs> and I'm not saying this happens often. I'm hopefully going to be reassured by you that it does not, but there clearly have been plenty of cases of where individuals were murdered for life insurance policies. What can you tell me about that? These are clearly the distinct minority of cases, but they are so extreme and, and often so bloody and, and heartless, not to mention heartbreaking, that they command an awful lot of attention. Th th these are people who will murder their spouse without thinking twice about it to collect life insurance money. We've seen people who have been killed for as little as $40,000 in, in life insurance. The Coalition Against Insurance Fraud has seen cases where parents have killed, murdered their infants, their young toddlers, for, for life insurance money. There's an absolute disconnect for, for the, the, the sanctity of, of human life when money's at stake here. 
And that just raises so many questions for me in terms of who can get policies on who and how regulated is that? How much do people know about the insurance policies taken out in their lives? Can somebody take a a policy out on a stranger? There's so many questions I have for you, but let's start with the one that you just mentioned, which is just, it isn't astonishing. It's just horrible to think of a parent taking out a life insurance policy on a child. First of all, why would a a parent ever need to do that? That is the $64 question. It's called, what's the insurable interest in legal terms? You can buy a a number of of small policies for kids, for example, and they're basically seen as investments in in the child's uh, college education later down the road. So you buy a few policies and they'll they'll increase in in value over over the years. That's one way to do it. And sometimes you can buy larger policies and you have to ask yourself, why was the insurance co- what was the insurance company thinking when it's insuring a, a larger policy on, on a life of an infant? There's a lot of room for state legislation of what it takes to insure the life of infants, for example. So are there laws currently, Jim, that protect children from these kinds of situations where a parent, again, I can only imagine this has got to be a very rare situation, but you have a parent who literally decides to take out a life insurance policy on their child and then murder the child for the money. What kind of protections does the child have, if any, right now? It depends on what you mean by protections. Again, you can still buy small policies for, for babies that are basically made for, for little kids and little babies. And they don't cost that much. They don't have that much money at stake for each one. But you can go from insurer to insurer insurer to insurer and keep on stacking up these little itty-bitty policies. And they don't raise a whole lot of questions because they're designed for infants. But when it comes to larger policies, I think we're going to find if you went to states, you'd have to ask, what are the state laws about insurable interest in, in children? And I think you're going to probably find that uh, there are a lot of states that, that are just yar- large gaps of, of where we need more state protections against just randomly insuring little kids and babies even uh, for larger sums of insurance money. Certainly by no means am I implying that if an insurance person sells a policy to a, a deviant parent that it's the insurance salesman's fault. But I think what I'm hearing you say is a couple of things. One is there's no keeping track of how many policies a parent might buy on a small child in terms of there are these kind of smaller policies that may be appropriate to or an option to buy on a child. And so a parent could typically could, could actually buy many of those. And I think what I'm hearing you say, and I want to clarify this, is that if though a parent went to an insurance company and said, I want to buy a a million dollar policy on my six month old child. Does that insurance person have any obligation to inquire about that, to turn that person down to, I think, are there any safeguards there? And I think maybe you're saying that there's not. Frankie, I I think any insurance professional, uh, whether it's an agent or a, an insurance life insurance company's employee would have to start asking questions. There's a point at which you just have to say, something is not right about this. We need to ask a lot more questions. Okay. 
so there's just, a, it sounds like there's a lot of ethics in the industry that no matter what the law, which might vary from state to state, there's, it would be common knowledge to go, this is not the norm. Something might be up here. We need to yeah. explore that. Now, even if the, assuming there's no fraud in the application itself, I just have to say, as a matter of ethics, shouldn't the agent start asking questions? If a parent somehow comes up, says, I need to insure my five-year-old for $250,000. It's not like this is a violin prodigy or a piano prodigy who, you know, who has a, an amazing life ahead. This is a little child who goes out and, and plays catch in, in the backyard with, with his dad. Yeah, you would certainly hope so. There was a, a case I read about that you may be familiar with. We had Halloween, obviously, a couple of months ago, and there's always the big Halloween candy scare that's been going on forever, even though there's really no evidence that candy tends to be tainted by a stranger. And in fact, the person who ruined Halloween was a, a man in Texas who literally bought a life insurance policy, a huge one, on his son and gave him tainted Halloween candy. And he was obviously able to do that. So you're right. It would certainly, you would certainly think that, and I think maybe now, this was years ago, you certainly think that most insurance agents would be a lot more cautious about asking those questions. Yes. And it's the deviousness that people will go to kill their spouse. Just those absolute end. I've seen cases where spouses have poisoned their one, one woman poisoned her husband's Gatorade with antifreeze and it made his organs shut down and it almost looked like a, a, a bad case of the flu. And it was, it was very hard to uncover because you need very specialized tests to even determine that it's something other than the flu. So help me understand, Jim, how the insurance company, how that would play itself out. So let's say that you have a husband, a wife dies suddenly and unexpectedly, and the husband calls up and starts asking for life insurance benefit payouts. And how would the insurance company get word that something might be amiss? Is it possible the insurance company might notice something that law enforcement has not noticed? How does that whole thing work? It really is a partnership Joni, between uh, law enforcement and the insurance company, they, they all have information, ideas, and clues. And they, they put their heads together, especially after an unusual death that just is not a normal death. And you start asking questions. Okay, how soon after your spouse died did the surviving sp spouse start making you make the insurance claim? If, if the spouse, if the wife dies on Tuesday and the husband is making a, a $400,000 claim on Friday, that should be a clue. They may start looking into the family's finances. Was the uh, family's finances uh, very, were, were the finances uh, a little bit shaky and they needed money? Was the husband, was the marriage a, a bad marriage? Was the spouse fooling around? How was the surviving spouse acting and behaving immediately after the death? We had a case where the day of the funeral, the surviving wife, <coughs> excuse me, the surviving wife was seen dancing on a table in a bar after the service. So that should tell you something. So clues like that really begin to add up and you keep on asking more and more questions and then you start seeing a pattern. And so how would the insurance company know about that? 
they will, for, again, they will start investigating the moment there is any kind of unusual death. It's just what you do. You don't just suddenly, the spouse just doesn't die and suddenly you hand over the money, especially in unusual circumstances. For example, one man and his best friend were out fishing. His best friend pushed him into the water in a pond, a cold pond, and then shotgunned him in the water. What was happening, his best friend was fooling around with, his, with the guy's wife. And they wanted the life insurance money and they wanted to run off together and, and um, be, be done with the, the honest husband. This case went cold for years, but the, the surviving relatives kept probing for clues. They kept on trying to find the body. And, and eventually law enforcement, some, some really dedicated law enforcement just refused to give up and dogged this case for clues for years before they finally found the body and they exhumed it. They found it and they, they found enough clues to convict this guy. Yeah, I, I am often astonished by some of the greed that leads to some of the murders and, and other things as well, custody battles and affairs and all kinds of things. But it is amazing to me the number of cases I've come across, as I mentioned earlier, that involve life insurance payouts. We're going to take a quick break. I'm Dr. Joni Johnston, and you are listening to The Forensic Psychologist. And our show today is The Psychology of Fraud. My fellow Americans, our mission here at AmericaOutloud.com is clear. We're here to defend our founding values and principles at a moment when they are under unprecedented assault. And to cover the news objectively and offer intelligent commentary on the challenges we face as a nation. You can tune in and join our family of listeners 24-7 in this vital crusade. Our apps are on Apple, Android, or Alexa. Find us on iHeartRadio or our world-class media player. It is a fight for the soul of humanity. America Out Loud Talk Radio is the voice of liberty and justice for all. Welcome back to The Forensic Psychologist. Now, are there things that are automatically trigger an investigation? Obviously, if there's some kind of a suspicious death. But so, for example, if a wife takes out a life insurance policy in January, and the husband dies in March. Is that something that is automatically a little red flag, the amount of time between the policy purchase and the death? Yes, Joni, that's a very good red flag that you're raising. It's one of quite a few that the insurance companies will go through the checkoff list and start saying, what are the red flags? How many are there? Do these start adding up to the need for the next level of investigation before we decide whether or not to pay this person? They'll even make sure that the uh, policy was taken out. You know, they'll even look to see if the policy was was signature was forged or not. Was the was the claim was the uh, spouse's signature forged on the policy using another person who showed up for, for the signing? Did the signature look like the, the, the deceased uh, spouses or not? 
It's got to be tricky in a way for the insurance company, because I can imagine there might be somebody listening to our show who's thinking, that's just the insurance company looking to try to avoid paying that benefit. The life insurance companies are very conservative. They, they want to do the right thing, and, but they also are not just in the business of handing out cash to anyone who happens to have a policy. They're trying to do the right thing. And part of the right thing is to make sure that this, the death is an, an honest, natural death. The policy is an honest, was honestly taken out. There's no funny business, no, no, no maladies, no murder. So, you know, I don't know that you can say that an insurance company is trying to avoid a claim when it goes, bends over backwards to try to uncover a, a heinous murder that, that ends the life of, a, of an innocent person. No, I totally see your point. I, I agree with that. I can just see, and, and probably the person who would be saying that would be maybe not the person listening to our show, but the person who is trying to get a benefit quickly <laughs> when there was some foul play. And it's mad that they're not getting paid out while the investigation is going on. Now, how long is there a time limit that an insurance company has? So, for example, as you pointed out earlier, that some investigations can go on for years and certainly for months when it's, is this, was this a homicide? Was this a suicide? Was this an accident? Whatever, trying to figure out the cause of death. How much time does an insurance company have to investigate and make a decision about it? Really, you're talking about the two-year contestability period. And that's the key. You may or may not be able to get somebody for life insurance fraud outside of the contestability period, but you can if you determine that there is a fraud and an underlying murder behind the claim. But normally, the insurance, life insurance company has two years to look into the claim unless it later discovers clear evidence of, of fraud and murder. So there is a timeline, basically, like you were saying, it's a two-year period, which seems to be a reasonable period of time when there can be an investigation. And there's the assumption that after two years, that's enough time to investigate that and make some kind of determination. Yes. But again, if you find evidence of murder, that's, you're talking about a criminal act and the, the test contestability period will not prevent you from being prosecuted. Now, what about this situation? There've been a couple of cases in which a person was found not guilty of a murder, even though the family members strongly suspected and continue to this day to believe that one spouse murdered the other. And yet they ended up suing the person civilly and the person was found civilly liable for the death of a spouse, but not criminally liable. What would be the insurance company's position in a situation like that? Depending on what you mean by what is the insurance company's position, are you, are you suggesting <laughs> that the insurance I'm sorry, I wasn't very clear, Jim. So I think what I'm saying is, let's say that you have, you have Susan is the spouse and Jim, sorry, Jim, let me pick another name. So let's say you have Susan and Chris, okay. Susan dies an unexpected and sudden death. Everybody thinks Chris murdered her. It goes to trial. The police thinks Chris murdered her. It goes to trial and there's not enough evidence or the jury's not convinced and they find Chris not guilty of first degree murder or second degree murder, whatever the charges were. And yet this family is still convinced that Chris murdered 
Susan, and they end up filing a civil lawsuit against Chris, who I should mention was the beneficiary in the life insurance policy, of course. And he is trying to get that money paid out. And as a matter of fact, maybe he's wanting it to defend himself in the civil suit. Regardless of that, the civil suit is filed and he is actually found liable in the civil suit for the death, even though he wasn't criminally liable. He is still saying that Again, he's the beneficiary with his life insurance policy, and he's wanting to get paid. Is that a, a situation where a life insurance company could basically say, I'm not going to give this money to you. Maybe I'll give it to the kids or somebody else, but I'm not going to give it to you. Or are they then obligated to do that? That's a good question. And I, I really can't speak to the individual facts of a situation like that, Joni, to be honest with you. I think that's going to be a very situational uh, decision that based, is based on the facts and so I'm, I'm going to respectfully uh, say that's something the life insurance company will have to make its own decision about. That's, a, that's an interesting answer. So it sounds like what you're saying is there is some leeway for a life insurance company to make a determination in that situation. There, there may be, but I, I think this is a good moment to talk with a life insurance company, especially counsel, to see how they would handle situations like that and, and what the underlying facts would, would dictate the response would be. Yeah, that, it, that's a pretty complicated case. It really is complicated and probably would require a lot of minds putting their heads together. What about people who fake their own deaths for life insurance? How often does that happen and what does that typically look like? And I know you were telling me in a phone conversation, we had some incredibly interesting stories of cases like this. Joni, it does happen and it's a lot harder to get away with in the United States than it is in, say, a third world country where you might be a U.S. national, a naturalized U.S. citizen from a, another country such as maybe Syria or, or Mexico um, or Central America where you, you have a much lower standard of living, it's much easier to bribe bureaucrats and, and others to issue fraudulent documents saying that you died while vacationing in, in that country in, in a tragic car crash where the body was burned, cannot be identified and was peacefully buried in, in a village uh, graveyard. It's much harder to get away with that in the United States, where we're just such a wired society. It's really hard to just stay on the grid and yet and, and still hide behind another identity. I was astonished, and maybe you can tell our listeners one, of, one or two of your stories, that there actually have been American citizens who've done that, who've actually traveled to other countries to fake their own death for life insurance benefits. Oh, yes, absolutely. It, it happens. There is a, a fellow from Moldova named Igor Varotinov, and he went back home. He was uh, to Moldova. He uh, somehow probably bribed a coroner to give him a body, dressed up the body in his clothing, put some, his, his own ID in it, and then left the body by a roadside in the bushes to rot, and it looked like Igor's. And of course, they bribe doctors for, for death certificates and coroners for, to certify the death and the, bur and the burial. And it looked like poor old Igor had died a very natural but tragic death in Moldova. In fact, Igor was living somewhere else the whole time. And 
just waiting. And his wife back home made a large ins life insurance claim based on all the evidence that was compiled in Moldova using bribes. It, it, was, it was a fascinating case. We've seen cases in Haiti in previous years where you have literally have a life insurance death industry. You can go from you can go to vendors who can who specialize in in birth certificates and, and helping arrange fake funerals that you can film and, and fake funeral possessions, even take pictures of, of you lying in your own coffin. And all this money goes, all this evidence goes piled up and, and given to the life insurance company as supposed proof that yes, in fact, you died. And it's all set up. Now, how did the case in Moldova, how did that unravel for him? It ultimately, it just didn't add up. The, the body didn't add up. The, 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 the documents didn't add up. The life insurance company started looking a lot closer in, into the local circumstances of the claim. N none of this just added up. And it, it was not hard to convict Igor, especially when they found him. And he was still alive. Yeah, that would be a clue. Your best evidence <laughs> is that you're still alive. Yeah, it's hard to argue that one, that's for sure. Now, how does the economy, and I guess I want to talk specifically about COVID, have you become aware of any changes, any increase in insurance scams during this really difficult time that we're all in right now? Joni, we're very anxiously on the watch for a spike in insurance claims. You're, there are people who are going to be in desperate financial straits, and they are already. The question is, Will they start using insurance fraud as their stimulus payout of choice, uh, maybe torching their car for insurance money before it gets repossessed or their home, or maybe their small businesses is on the brink. So they turn off, they disable the refrigeration unit in back and, and $80,000 of inventory suddenly is to weigh because it's not uh, frozen. We're on the lookout for this. We don't know whether it's going to come, but we think there's a very strong chance that will, and we're watching very closely. And I wonder, is there a historical data to support that? So for example, in the financial crisis in 2008, 2009, I wonder if there was a spike or an increase in insurance claims. It's hard to imagine that there wouldn't be. Joni, the Coalition Against Insurance Fraud did a lot of research back then. We surveyed state any fraud units. And the survey came back resoundingly that there was a, a, a significant spike in, in many forms of insurance fraud during that period. I personally even was calling around to state fire marshals and trying to see what their data looked like in terms of homes and, and cars. And many around the country were telling me, yes, our data shows a clear spike in fires. So something was happening. So I, I think the evidence is very clear that it happened, that insurance scams spiked then, which is why we're on the lookout for whether insurance scams will spike today. I know we're almost out of time, but I did want to ask you one last question, and that is putting you on the spot a little bit. I guess the most interesting or unusual case of insurance fraud that you can remember that you've come across. Joni, there, there are too many to say this is the most amazing. But if you're looking for some of the most gruesome ones, there was a, a fellow in, in Arizona who torched his house. He had a very large house and torched it. 
unfortunately, there were witnesses, an entire family. What he did is he went in and, and executed an entire family to cover up the witnesses who had helped him commit the fraud and who knew about it. This included children, young adolescents who just happened to know about it. So he massacred a whole family. Now go figure. Yeah, I can't even get my arms around that. One of the things I think that is clear is, I know in my training for a long period of time, there was this kind of distinction between people who commit, quote, white collar crimes and people who commit, quote, violent crimes. And I think if nothing else, our conversation today has just shown, and certainly like some of the cases have shown, that is a lot of times an arbitrary distinction. And that when you have people, specifically people who will commit fraud over and over again or systemically, that's, I think, sometimes an indicator that person is capable of a lot of other things. That's a really astute observation on your part, Joni. And there is a very thin line between simply being dishonest and and trying to scam a little money and, and being a complete and unrepentant psychopath who is so disassociated with with the lives that they're taking and destroying that they they don't even realize it. They they lack the empathetic ability to see the damage they're doing to honest people, even killing them. If there was one thing that you wanted our listeners to take away from today's show, what would it be? Stay honest. You, You try to scam your insurance company. You might get away with it. You were up against trained professionals who know a lot more about how to find fraud than you do about how to commit fraud because you're an amateur. That's a great way to end the show because I have to say, just hearing some of the stories and how sophisticated they are, I'm really impressed and in awe of some of the work that obviously has been done to catch individuals who are committing these kind of crimes. So I want to appreciate to thank you so much, Jim, for coming on today and sharing your expertise and applaud the work that you're doing and hope we can have you back at some point to talk about some other things. That's great, Joni. It's a pleasure. I love the questions you're asking. You really get to the heart of the issues. So that's what makes it that much more of a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you so much. And you've been listening to the Forensic Psychologist. I'm Dr. Joni Johnston, and we'll see you next time.